Are you called to ministry? Throughout the month of March, Midwestern Seminary is giving away free resources and content to equip you to pursue your calling for the church. Your calling is too important to pursue unequipped, so we want to gift you with helpful books and articles, scholarships to seminary commentary sets, Logos Bible software, and more. Enter to win these giveaways at mbts.edu slash called. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the entire month of March as well. This is an incredible giveaway. You can win scholarships, you can win helpful books, you can win commentary sets, and you can win a Logos Bible software package. That's incredible. And there are so much more that they're giving away over at mbts.edu slash called. Go check out this giveaway. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the month of March. So there is really no reason to not enter this giveaway right now. mbts.edu slash called. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up? How's it going? Hey, Kyle. I'm kind of hungry. Yeah, I'm hungry too. Yeah, because JT was, JT was just talking about food, wasn't he? Yeah, and it he made me like, hungry, and now we got to get through this. On a rumbly stomach. Yeah, I know, right? Well, um, uh, we're, we're jumping in. Normally, at this hour, I would not be here. I would be at jujitsu. That's what I, that's what I do usually over lunch. And huh. I say that because there's a segue here. I'm not just bragging about going to jujitsu. The listener knows <laughs> I'm a master. Wow, could you? Don't could doubt you beat my craft. Uh, let's not, let's, let's leave that question for off air. Um, in, <laughs> okay. in, in person, off air. Um, <laughs> So I, I go to jujitsu three or four times a week and I don't like broadcast that I'm a pastor, but that information seems to get out there. Um, and is it because you pray copiously while you're being choked out by your opponents? Please Lord. I'm like crying out to the Lord. Help me, help me. Uh Prayers instead of swears. Yeah, I I wish. (laughs) You're like something that dude must be a pastor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but Weirdly enough, one of the things that has become more and more common, and I don't know if this is just like the fading of Christendom in America, but like when I tell people I'm a pastor, they'll be like, oh, like, so you're a priest? Mm-hmm. And I don't wear a wedding ring when I train, right? Because like I don't want something to happen to my finger. And so people will be like, oh, you're a priest? And I'll be like, well, I'm a pastor. And w- when you think of a priest, you might be thinking of like a Catholic priest who's unmarried and but like, no, I'm, I'm married. I have a kiddo. And, um, and they're like, oh, okay. Okay. And, but it does end up raising the question to them of like, well, what's the difference between a priest and a pastor? And every time they ask me this, I have to like table my, my biblical theology hat and be like, well, technically all Christians are priests. And I have to go into their world for a second and try to like help. Okay. Like you're, you're thinking of a priest in this way. You're thinking of a priest as somebody who wears like official clothes. Probably you're thinking of a priest as somebody who has like a religious commitment every single day, somebody who's offering a sacrifice in the mass. And then as the, as I begin to talk to them about priests, it often often 
reminds me of what we're discussing today, which is there is a lot that we think about when we think about priests, even when we think about Roman Catholic priests or even priests from more Episcopal or Anglican denominations, where there is a familiarity. There, there are some things that are attached to the priesthood in the Old Testament that reverberate even in contemporary expressions of Christianity today. I'm not condoning them. I'm not supporting them. I'm not saying that's what we should do. I'm just saying it is a part of what we understand priests to be. And we find that here in Exodus 28, when we think about the garments, the clothing, and the consecration of the priests. Now, there are some really important things to discover in these passages here, but this is another one of those passages where you might read it and go, why am I hearing about the wardrobe of these priests? Like, I don't need a, you know, uh, a depiction of what they're going to wear. And so I want to I want us to begin with this big question and maybe it'll help give some context for the details we'll uncover here in a moment. What is a priest? Just like if somebody asks you, according to the Bible, what is a priest? What's a bit basic biblical storyline, biblical theology of the priesthood? Let's start with that. I know that's real big picture and we're going to narrow it down, but just if somebody said what is a priest according to the Bible, what would you say? Whenever somebody asks me for a priest, I tell him to find a pastor in Richardson who does jujitsu. <laughs> He's the real priest. So that's you're the one. You're the you're the one sending yeah, all. I'm of sending these. people your way. Perfect. That explains so much. I'd be interested to hear your your definition. I've always thought of a priest as a representative and a representative yeah. in two directions. A priest mm-hmm. is somebody who represents God to the people, and also the people to God. I think that that's is what I would have said. I think simple. that is a great yeah. simple definition. Yep. And also can wrestle. And uh, yeah, wrestle. Can wrestle. That's right. Well, let's let's uh let's read about the garments of the priest. I'm gonna read Exodus twenty-eight verses one through five, and then I'm gonna skip over to twenty-nine verses one through nine. I'm not doing that because there's something we don't want to talk about in between there, but we need to kind of anchor in both of these passages. So I'm not trying to avoid something, but again, as we've said before, we're not really doing a line by line study through Exodus. That's not what these seasons are about. I just want to give us some anchor points so we can tie this passage to the larger uh ripples uh from the priesthood that we find both before and beyond the book itself. So let me read Exodus 28 verses one through five, then I'll skip over to Exodus 29 verses one through nine. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make him, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Now I'm skipping over to 29 verses 1 through 9. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priest. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. 
Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Okay, there we go. Have we encountered priests before this moment? Let's start there. Is this, this is the establishment of the formal priesthood of Israel, but I don't think, given our definition of what a priest is, these are the first priests we've encountered. They're not the last priests we will encounter. So let's just kind of just start here. Is this, Are these the first priests we're meeting, or is something happening with the institution of the priesthood that's unique here? I'll jump in. I don't know that I have a whole biblical theology of priesthood in mind, but no, this isn't the first time that we've encountered priests. I think uh, it's very reasonable for us to look at the very first human characters that we meet in the Bible, Adam and Eve, as having some kind of representative priesthood role. They are image bearers, uh, and there's a there's a priestly nature in that. They are representing all of creation to God and, and God to creation. They're creating order where there is chaos, and they're extending his glory uh, to all of his creation. You can make the case that Noah uh, is also a priest. The very first thing that he does is he's representing God to people and people to God, and he's also a worshiper. He's somebody who immediately after uh, uh, the flood and 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 uh, he, he the phrase first act based upon Jen Wilkins' uh, uh, Bible, <laughs> Bible quiz, quiz. <laughs> yeah is to is to is to worship and to build an altar of worship to God. Uh, the pre incarnate Christ Melchizedek is another example of uh, of priest. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me the question. It's not my fault uh, of, of priesthood. I mean, and so whenever we see one of these uh, main characters emerge in the Bible, not whenever, but many times when we see one of these main characters emerge in the Bible, we're kind of seeing some of the, the language you might use as a type or an archetype. This is a shadow that is both uh, representative of something that's come before, but also pointing towards something that's coming in the future, specifically our great high priest. Uh, Jesus, and so we could see we could see priestly natures in Adam and Eve, in Noah, in Melchizedek, in Abraham. Uh, certainly, see it here with Aaron. You could see it with the Levitical priesthood. Uh, all of these are both real, but also shadows of pointing to a, a great high priest. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So when we get to this moment, we're seeing the institution of the formal priesthood of Israel. They haven't had a priestly. We might call it caste. You know, we, they haven't had a priestly strata. They haven't had a formal priestly leadership. There have been figures that precede this moment that have served a priestly function. But this— This is now a specific vocation yes, for a group of people. That's right. For Aaron and his, and his sons in particular. And so this is going to be significant because they're going to be fulfilling a holy vocation, an office, a calling that is going to continue long after this, beyond the tabernacle, beyond the wilderness. Once they get into the land, once they build the temple, this is going to continue. It is going to continue. It is going to continue until it is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus and until there's a place where you can no longer offer sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And so because of this, I think we should ask, what were these priests doing? Jen, what what were the priests up to? Yes, they were broadly serving as representatives on, uh, on man's behalf before God, on God's behalf before man, but what were they actually doing? 
Well, they were responsible for the upkeep uh, and the setting up of the tabernacle everywhere that they went. They were responsible for offering the daily sacrifices uh, on behalf of the people. And then the high priest once a year offering the uh, on the Day of Atonement, the, the sacrifice on behalf of uh, all of the people. So they were they were busy guys. And depending on um, whose son you were, you had one role or another. And mm-hmm. um Everybody had plenty of work to do. And so I, I was thinking, though, like about how you read the descriptions of their clothing and it's this they're elaborate. And we'll talk more about um, some of the pieces of the garments. But I was noticing going through Exodus one time how in the instructions that are given for the tabernacle, there's no dressing room uh, mm. for these guys, which means they must have had to get all of this garment stuff on at home and walk through the camp uh, to go do their duties. And like one of the things that's on the robes of the priests are bells. They have bells along the hem of their robes, which means that you would hear them coming before you would see them coming. And if they'd already performed service in the tabernacle, you would probably smell them coming too because of the smell either of, you know, barbecue basically from the outer court. Mm-hmm. That's really not the proper term for it or incense, you know, depending mm-hmm. on where they had, they had served. And I was thinking like, you guys know when you're in a local church for a long time and people know who you are, like I've, I led this woman's Bible study at my church. I've led it for, you know, almost 16 years. And so when I go into target in, in flower mound, I'm like, can I get in and out of here without somebody stopping me? (laughs) And the answer is usually no, but also I enjoy the interaction when it happens. But I think about these guys walking to and from work Mm. And how they would have been uh, a presence in the community that was immediately recognizable even before they they stepped into the room. And I've thought often about like how how um, what people would have said to them and what they would have asked of them. You know, are you going into the tabernacle today? You know, will you offer prayers for me for my family? I don't know. It was just kind of a cool thought. And I yeah. and then I wondered, as long as I'm just dragging us down the rabbit trail. Like, do you think, Kyle? You said you know when you go to jujitsu, you're not wearing a a clerical collar or anything, but is there a significance to the priest, the person who, I mean, obviously we don't think in a Protestant sense of a pastor as being an intercessor the way that like mm-hmm. a Catholic would, but do we lose anything when there isn't an outward sign uh, of the office of pastor um, that's worn all the time? I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, I think I've thought about this a lot and, you know, I don't like, Obviously, just for the record, I, I don't wear a clerical collar, and I don't think pastors. You would look might. great in one. Oh, well, thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> if I motive. wore bells, it would stop a bunch of jump scares. <laughs> yeah, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. Actually, you should wear bells. Let's now get you some bells, <laughs> like a glorified cat. Yeah. No, but I will. I will say, um, I do think something is lost. I think something is lost. I don't know if there's something that's gained that's commensurate. I do think something is lost in the way that um, uniforms typically do identify people in the community in terms of what they can provide. Like Mm -hmm. it's helpful if there's a fire to have somebody in a fireman's uniform, like that guy can probably help in the same way that if I get robbed on the street, 
it would be most helpful to point to a police officer in a police officer's uniform than it would just be going, hey, can anybody help me here? So I do think there is a sense in which these clothes are identifying marks, not just of what somebody's vocation is, but of what their role is in serving the community. And that is certainly true for the priestly garments. It was funny you bring that up, Jen, because that's exactly one of the things that I was going to talk about, which is that these priestly garments were not just uh, meant for in tabernacle usage or in worship usage, but they would have been a visual indicator um, to all of the people of Israel's encampment at this time that the presence of God, yes, is in a blessed and special way in the tent of meeting, but it is not confined to the tent of meeting. It's not constrained mm-hmm. there. Even the, the priest walking around with mm-hmm. the garments on is an indicator to Israel that yes, the priest might be going to or from the dedicated house of worship, but we should be under no illusion that the presence of God is somehow confined to that place. And I think that's really, really significant, particularly for a wandering people, for a nomadic people before Mm -hmm. they get to the land that it's literally walking with us. It's in our sights. It's in our sounds. It's in our smells. And I do think that that is um, certainly more holistic than we often think about the role of worship, you know, where the pastor is doing his ministry in the place where, where the presence of God and ministry happens, as opposed to this is merely one very special, very sacred, very blessed place um, that is a picture of what's happening in all the world at all the time. That's that's really interesting, too, when you think about when they get to the promised land and the land allotments are assigned and the mm-hmm. the Levites don't receive a land allotment because they are they receive portions that are dispersed among mm-hmm. the yes. people. So that's you exactly see that right. same idea uh, get bigger. And, and even that is foreshadowing really the Great Commission, where it says that mm. you will take my take my words to the ends of the earth. I just I hadn't really ever thought about that until just now. No, and I think it's one of the things that Peter has in mind in 1 Peter 5 when he's exhorting the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. I think mm-hmm. Peter is deliberately calling on the tradition of the the priestly tribe, priestly caste, not having a sectarian or siloed space, but being interspersed among the tribes of Israel for the purpose of being... Uh, a, a mediated or visible uh, picture or symbol of mm-hmm. the presence of God among the people. That That mm-hmm. is how it's supposed to work. It's kind of coming at it from all sides. Now, we've been talking about the garments of the priest, but we haven't really talked about some of the specifics there, and it does get specific. Some of the things that are drawn to when the priestly garments are specifically the colors, the coloration of the priestly garments, it's a rather colorful outfit um, when you really look at it here. Um, And not only that, it's, I've been thinking of another word to say it, and I don't, I'm not saying this word because I'm trying to be silly with it, but they are bedazzled almost. (laughs) Uh, there's a, I quit. There, Here's my formal <laughs> resignation. I'm just saying, like, I, I, I really was trying I to think, think of a bejeweled word. Bejeweled is what you're looking for. Bedazzled. They, they certainly have colorful stones on them. Uh, and, uh, but, but they're significant. What are some of the significances here? Um, I've got a couple of things, but I'll let you guys lead the way. Well, I, th- I think the first thing I would highlight, I did a sermon on this at TVC a long time ago. So I don't remember all of the details as well as I did when I was preparing for that. But, if I could communicate anything specific to, to, to our listeners and even to remind myself is none of these details are insignificant insofar as they're just trying to look fancy, right? Like mm-hmm. this isn't just a 
Let's make the priests look fancier than everybody else. Every single element is liturgical participation in the story of redemption. Like, Mm -hmm. it is a purposeful uh, outfit that helps God's people remember who these priests are and really to remember the story of God. So, for example... You have the ephod with the stones of remembrance, and this is just to remind the people of God that uh, who God is, and then there's these 12 stones of who God's people are, and uh, on two of these stones are written the 12 names of the tribe of Israel, or you have the breastplate that reminds them uh, of God's judgment, and maybe even how they should be adjudicating matters among themselves. The Jen already mentioned the robe which is worn for its bells, which is to, to I wouldn't say to remind uh, God that, that they're coming in, but it's a, it's a, it's a function of uh, the priest entering into the presence of God. So there's an awareness of uh, the creature coming into the creator's presence so that he wouldn't die. And then maybe like the diadem, which is on uh, Aaron's head, which is something that uh, uh, uh maybe offers us in some kind of sacrificial sense of God is going to accept the sacrifices of God's people because he's coming in bearing the name of Yahweh himself on his head. And so there's more details than that. But when we read these passages, we shouldn't just kind of fly through them and think, oh, this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. And I even got an email recently from somebody at our church that was talking about Man, it really feels like Storyline has gotten some nicer things lately, and we haven't. We we worship in a former Albertsons, but we are a little nicer than we were two years ago. But we really can have this sense of, well, it's not real anymore as we grow in excellence, or if we have this nice thing. And I just want to point back to there really does need to be a sense of transcendence and beauty among the mm-hmm. people of God for the sake of worship, that whether we're thinking about architecture or what we wear, uh, it isn't that God is somehow not going to accept the worship of of uh, of somebody who isn't wearing something like this. God is merciful and he's gracious, but God is intentionally ordering the worship of God's people around who he is and the story of redemption that he's accomplishing in them to both uh, to, 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 to remind them, but also to get glory for himself. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. The garments are made for glory and for beauty. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we, we have a tendency to devalue beauty in, in our current forms of worship or to think that that is um, uh, showiness instead of something that can point us to the transcendence of God. I like the um, the image of the the two stones on the shoulders of the priests with mm-hmm. the six tribes on one engraved on one and six tribes on the other. We have an expression that we talk that we use where we talk about shouldering responsibility. And mm. um, when you see those names on the shoulders of the priest, yeah. they're literally shouldering responsibility for carrying the the words of the people to God and carrying the words of God back to the people. And, and it puts me in mind of the the prophecy that we have in Isaiah uh, of the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father. And then it says the government shall be upon his shoulders mm-hmm. uh, in reference to Christ. And and you can see that it's a it's a it's a priestly reference that he will bear responsibility and he he will bear the names of, of, of the people of God into the presence of God. Um, that's one of my favorite things. And then you were talking about the crown, JT. The crown is inscribed with the words holy to the Lord. So they, they literally have an inscription on their foreheads, mm-hmm. uh, which is significant because when we get to Revelation, we see come to pass what has already been promised. Like we're getting in, in we're in, we're in, we're in uh, Exodus uh, 25, 26, 28, but we've already heard in Exodus 19, God say that he will make Israel a kingdom of priests. And so they don't get to see that come to pass fully. They will see it come to pass partially in this priesthood that is being uh, instituted here. But uh, when we get to Revelation, we see it come to pass fully. And what are we told there? We're told that this these kingdom and priests to God have an inscription on their forehead. And so, you know, you get to Revelation and you start hearing a lot about people having stuff written on their foreheads and it can sound very foreign to you unless Hmm. you know that having something inscribed on your forehead is actually uh, a type that has been introduced all the way back here earlier in the story. Um, And so when we hear about people having an inscription of the beast on their foreheads, we understand that they are not in the type of Christ, but in the type of Antichrist. Yeah. Um, so when we see here the priest having holy to the Lord written on his forehead, it, it's not just that he's supposed to. I mean, can you imagine walking through the the camp wearing holy to the Lord on your on your forehead? There are a lot of behaviors you're not going to engage in when you have that written on your forehead. Mm-hmm. And um, I always think that for us as the as the priesthood, it, it's good for us to remember what if we behaved as though we had written on our foreheads holy to the Lord everywhere that we went. We probably would use different words. We probably would uh, be more patient. We probably would think uh, much more circumspectly about the way that Mm. we interact with our neighbors. And so um, I do think one of the challenges for every believer, not just for the pastor, uh, is to is to live toward that future reality when we will, in fact, be clothed. And we will, in fact, um, bear all of the the priestly garments in a spiritual sense, because that's our that's we have that now in Christ. 
And so even as we go about our day, what if we pictured ourselves, you know, labeled in that way? Hmm. That's right. That's right. And, and you, you took it to exactly where I hoped you would, you know, the priestly garments here, you have the name inscribed or the title inscribed on the forehead, you've got the shoulder piece, but you also have on the breast piece there that there again, the names Mm -hmm. are, it says in verse 29, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So they're Mm -hmm. on their shoulders because he bears them up um, and they're on over his heart um, because he remembers them. And, and I actually think we get an echo of this when we think about Aaron bears this on his breast piece, bringing mm-hmm. them into the house of the Lord once a year into the Holy of Holies, right? It comes into the, the merciful atoning presence of the Lord once a year, but the Lord Jesus as the perfect high priest who lives to make intercession for his people, who is the good shepherd, who knows them by name. The Lord Jesus doesn't just have the 12, the, the names of the sons of the 12 tribes of Israel over his breast piece. He has the names of the people written in the Lamb's book of life, and he lives to make intercession mm-hmm. for them. It never stops. Aaron's service to remember the people of Israel was brought into the presence of the Lord once a year, but the perfect high priest's service of intercession before the Father is evermore. It is always an ongoing. There's never a time when the people of the perfect high priest are forgotten in the presence of Yahweh. They are always remembered because they are there in Christ. Um, And when we put on the new clothes, as Ephesians would say, or when we put on the armor of God, as the last part of Ephesians will say, as we put on the garments of Christ, uh, we are taking upon ourselves what he has secured for us uh, in Jesus Christ. The garments of the perfect high priest uh, in Israel, or the garments of the imperfect high priest in Israel, were confined only to him. He was the Mm -hmm. only one. Mm-hmm. But for us, we all undertake the garments of the perfect high priest. We are all clothed with something that at one point only belonged to Aaron and only belonged to Aaron's descendants. And so there is a evolution, a development of this over the story of the Bible. And I do think it's really, I think what you said initially, JT, is so important. All of this is liturgical storytelling. It's not mm-hmm. It's not just fancy clothes. It's not even dead. I know we look at some of this and think of it as dead ritualism or arbitrary or some sort of self-serving vanity. It's none of that. Uh, and I'm not saying in bad forms, it couldn't be that in some contemporary expression. I'm just saying it wasn't instituted to be that. It was instituted to be a, uh, a mobile witness, really, right. to the presence of God. Well, I've said this elsewhere, but I think it bears repeating in relation to the way that the priests are garbed and really every aspect of the tabernacle. We don't give God enough credit for being a poet. Mm-hmm. And these 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 garments are like wearable poetry. They are their metaphor mm-hmm. as good. much as they are a literal um, representation. And, 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 and when we are bored with these lists, right, like when we rush through them in a reading plan, then we don't connect the poetic language to the other places in scripture where we should. And the metaphor doesn't strike us the way that it should or the way that it could. And like just a very simple example of this would be um, when you get all the way to Revelation chapter four, I mentioned this scene in our in our last podcast episode. We see the throne room in heaven, and it says that the one seated on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. 
And you might just kind of zip past that unless you had paid attention to the list of the stones on the ephod all the way back in the passages that we're reading now. Because if you paid attention to that list, then you would know that's a reference to the first stone and the last stone on the ephod. And then you see that this one who's seated on the throne is the Alpha and the Omega, that he holds in him all of Israel, Uh, all of true Israel is is held in him. And then it begins to make more sense why you see at the end of Revelation, the the kinds of um, precious stones that we've seen on the ephod mentioned as the foundations of the new Jerusalem. Um, And and all of a sudden you begin to see that God's plan to dwell with us um, has gone from this sort of germinated form here in Exodus all the way to its full completion at the end of the story. Mm. Yeah, I'm loving that you're in both of these books at the same time because mm-hmm. it is really helpful. I think that it doesn't take long to realize that Revelation is is pulling from so much imagery from these books. Mm-hmm. But as we've gone through this, it's kind of been astounding to me just how much of it is getting repeat airtime in Revelation. Like it really has surprised me. Like I know it's there and some of the more obvious ones I've, I've either studied or been pointed out Mm -hmm. to before, but I think that for maybe the casual listener who is in their Bible reading plan, either reading right now or about to come up on these specific passages in Exodus who are going, all right, what is the, how does this really make a difference Mm -hmm. um, across the rest of the story? Yes. We want to appreciate them because they're a part of our sacred book and they're here and we should know what they're doing here, but they're not just confined here. They're not siloed to this part of the story. They are reverberating and rippling in a very big way all the way up and through the last book in the canon of the Bible. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a really, that's a really remarkable thing to think about that the stones on the priestly garments are becoming like the street work Mm -hmm. in the new heavens and the new earth. That's Mm -hmm. there. There's that it's not coincidental and it's certainly saying something important, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So let's skip over to Exodus 29 to wrap this up. We've talked about the garments of the priest. Let's talk about the consecration of the priest. This consecration ceremony is a ceremony that is is one of by blood, and this is going to come up a lot, and I'm going to keep pointing it out because I remember as an early Bible reader, even as somebody who was growing up in a home where I had high levels of access to information about the Bible, I was astounded by how much blood there is and how often that blood is getting sprinkled and spread on people and places. And I think if you're a, if you're new to the Bible, or even if you've been in there for a while, it can be, you can feel like why the blood, why is blood necessary for sacrifice and why in particular here is it necessary for consecration? So just real big picture here, JT, why, why the blood before we're even talking about its role in the consecration ceremony, why all the blood? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking biggest picture because of sin, uh, because of a, a need for sacrifice, I think that's what I would point to first, even just reading verse 10, bring the bull in front of the tent of meeting and Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the bull's head. Most scholars that I've read at least would say this is some kind of a transfer of sin, of, of, of placing the sins of the priests and of God's people. We read about this in the the lamb, that the goat that's sent outside of of, uh, of the people in, in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And then this is going to be the lamb that's sacrificed or the goat that's sacrificed or the ram that's sacrificed because of the sin now being transferred from God's people or the priests to this. I remember this is going to sound a little, uh, I don't mean to, for those of you who might be a little um, 
squeamish. I get it because I'm a little squeamish too. But when I was in seminary, we had a professor because there's still uh, Orthodox Jews who participate in some ceremonies like this still. And when you see, uh, they showed us a video of an actual sacrifice taking place. And when you see an actual sacrifice taking place, it is a guttural reminder of your brokenness and sinfulness. And you are reminded that it is my, like we, we sing the song, it is my sin that held him there. It is, it is, and they're here seeing, it is my sin that led to the death of this animal. This even takes us back to Genesis chapter three, when God uh, sacrifices an animal in order to clothe, there would have been blood there, there was blood in the garden of Eden in order to clothe Adam and Eve and their, and their shame. So at the highest level, we see the need for, for blood being poured out because of the sinfulness of humanity. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so there are multiple sacrifices and offered in Exodus 29, but I really want to just stay here. I, 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 we don't have the time to dive into each one of these specifically, but what is happening is that this is an act of consecration. You're going to even see that in your Bible. The word consecration means to set apart or to make holy. And because this world is broken by sin, things are not consecrated by nature. They aren't. They need to be made holy. And the only one who can make something holy is the holy God. And because of the impact of sin and its fundamental consequence, which is death, blood is required for the forgiving of sins. And it is also required for the making something holy. It, it is required for cleansing and for purification. And so when the priests are consecrated here, they are being set apart for holy service. We used a word earlier that we didn't define. The priests have a defined vocation, a defined calling, something that they are to give their day in, day out time, imagination, work, energy. Don't think about vocation as a job or as a career. That would be to lessen it. Vocation is heavier than career or job. Um, and so the priestly call is to give their lives over in daily, weekly, monthly, annual service to Yahweh by purification, by sacrifice, by ceremony, by prayer, by worship. And so in order to do that, they have to be purified. They have to be consecrated. They have to be set apart for this task. And the blood atonement, the blood offering is a significant part of how that happens. This isn't just true for them. It's true for us, right? Like keep in mind before the priest of Aaron are consecrated with blood, the entire nation of Israel is covered by it. Like they all left Egypt under bloody doorpost all of them. And so before the priesthood is consecrated, the people of Israel are covered. The, the priests aren't being, um, they're not being saved in their consecration. They've already been delivered from Egypt. They've already been rescued. This consecration is above and beyond that. It, it is more significant. It is a setting part, setting apart for holy office. Probably the closest New Testament analog to this is the laying on of hands for the purposes of ordination of the elder and the deacon. That's probably the closest we get to something like this in the New Testament, because by the time that we arrive at the perfect high priest, we have all become a part of the priesthood because we are in Jesus Christ, the perfect 
perfect high priest, and we're all consecrated and covered by his blood that that atones for our sins and qualifies us for the holy vocation of being his people and his priesthood, right? First Peter 5 says we're all priests, right? We're, we're, we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people. All of us are who have become this. It's become dispersed, decentralized among all of God's people because it's now been summed up fully in God's person, Jesus Christ. Jen, did you have something to add there? Nope. You nailed it. Okay. Well, I hope that this episode has helped you. If you feel like I don't really know why I should care about the tabernacle in the last episode or the garments of the priest in this one. We're going to continue this journey. Now, don't be afraid. In just a few chapters, we're going to get into like another narrative segment. So we're going to come up for air in a very interesting and peculiar story that a lot of us are familiar with when we get to the golden calf. But between now and then, there is so much rich connections between what God is doing here among the people of Israel in this place at this time and what he's doing across the whole story of the Bible. If we've recommended anything that you want to find out more about, you can check the show notes. Uh, We really appreciate you listening to the podcast. And if you want to find out more, you can go to trainthechurch.com. We actually have a monthly newsletter that you can subscribe to. Um, And we have some opportunities for you to get episodes early and ad-free. If that's something you're interested in, you can go to trainthechurch.com slash support. We want to encourage you to check out our sister show, the Family Discipleship Podcast. They are doing wonderful work equipping parents, child care workers, people that serve in children's ministry and in youth ministry. Even if you're in public education or private school, there is wonderful resources over at the Family Discipleship Podcast to think about how you can be engaging with children and with students with the deep things of the Lord. We commend them to you and we encourage you to check out that show. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or theology? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminary's For the Church Institute, which offers courses in Old and New Testament, Christian theology, and more, including the newly released course on missional leadership. Again, this is free theological training that you can use for your own equipping, for the equipping of those in your church, and it is available for groups or on your own. You can learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for theological training courses, free theological training courses today. Go check it out.